Language Talk is a series of podcasts of interest to Kentucky World Language Association members seeking information about important events, initiatives, and professional development opportunities. Each month, we will be talking with people in the know about world languages from across the state. Topics range from collaboration to the program review, from ACTFL news to interviews with master teachers. Language Talk is produced monthly by the Kentucky World Language Association Board and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. Welcome to Language Talk KWLA. This is your host, Laura Roche Youngworth, and today's topic is the proficiency-based classroom. Since the late 1970s, the term proficiency-oriented language instruction has been in use. Theorists such as Tedek and Omaj Hill Hadley began to appear in second language acquisition texts. They highlighted proficiency-based characteristics such as meaningful interaction, what a language learner can do with the language, integration of multiple modalities, and incorporation of target language culture. Fast forward 40 years, and the concept of proficiency-based teaching remains prevalent. A proficiency-based instruction is the core of national and state world language standards, and world language educators are expected to emphasize a communicative approach and de-emphasize the linguistics. Our guest today is no stranger to Kentucky World Language Educators. He is a former World Language Consultant for Jefferson and Fayette County Public Schools and has been providing consulting services across the United States for learning shifts and advanced learning. Welcome, Thomas Sauer. I wanna thank you for being here as our guest on Language Talk and for sharing your thoughts on proficiency-based instruction. So, Thomas, you've been a part of an amazing amount of opportunities over the years. Is there one experience in particular that really resonates with you, an experience that shaped who you are today and the perspective you have on education? That's really hard to answer that question because for me it's always the next experience, I guess, that I'm looking for. Right. But there are probably two, one that's ongoing and one that was an actual event. One that would probably mean not much to Kentucky educators, but it meant a lot for me, was about 10 years ago, I spent a summer, well, a a couple of days in the summer with the National Association of District Supervisors of Foreign Languages. I had just gotten my job in Jefferson County um, Mm -hmm. out of a regular teaching situation. Now you're supposed to be in charge and didn't really know what I was doing. And so there were a bunch of us around the country and we wanted to get some training and they set up a, a week-long academy for us, uh, and we had great people there. Mimi Met was there, Gregory Duncan, um, a lot of people who who have really paved the way for district supervisors. And so that that was a really that was a breakthrough week for me in connecting with other supervisors because in Kentucky we only have one or two, right, so right. we don't really have the opportunity to talk to those folks. So that's one. And then the other one is probably any time I can watch Greg Duncan work, probably. Uh, a life-changing one for me. What is it about Greg Duncan? The way he explains proficiency and the way he explains what teachers should be doing. I learn something new every single time. Um, so watching him, and then lately I, I would add Laura Terrell to that in the same oh, vein. Wow. Um, I just Every time I see either one of those present, I learn something new, even if the topic is something I do myself. Right. Uh, but I can go in and I can learn something just new. Just the way so. they approach it, you're mm-hmm. like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty neat. Uh, the proficiency-based instruction, it's more than a catchphrase. Yes. It is the goal of today's world language educators. How would you describe proficiency-based instruction? Hmm. That's, uh, that's another hard question. Right. You ask hard questions. Because for me, it's hardly ever about the instruction, actually. Okay. 
And in fact, I told my teachers that in Louisville all the time that I don't care how you teach. Uh, and I'm never going to tell you how to teach because I don't know your kids. I don't know you. And, you know, there's a, a million ways to skin a cat. Right. Um, but for me, to f- when we're talking about proficiency-based learning, proficiency-based teaching, proficiency-based program, it's really about the outcomes. Um, the fact that we're doing something that results in actually measurable language outcomes. So kids can do something with the language, um, and they can do it a whole lot better than they have in the past. Um, kind of made it my life mission, this whole, uh, I had two years of Spanish and I can't say anything, right. which I hear every single day, no matter where I'm at, because the moment you find out what you, what you do for a living, they're like, oh, yeah, I had two years. And so... Whatever the opposite of that is, that is proficiency-based learning for me. When you say that, do you expect only one mode of communication or what? No, of course not. I mean, when we're talking about proficiency, we really are talking about measuring the performances in, in all skill areas and all across all modes. Um, so, yeah, so my, my, most of my work has been in focusing on the assessment piece, uh, designing assessments that allow kids to demonstrate that they have learned something. Okay. Um, and so that's what it's really about. And if, let's say, you're visiting a district and you were given the opportunity to walk through the world language teacher classrooms, however many there are, what would be those telltale signs that a teacher is embracing proficiency-based instruction? I mean, you'd know it within a minute or two. Yeah, and, and, that, and that is all it takes. Sometimes people yeah. get upset when I don't stay very long, but it really does only take a couple of minutes, and you know what's going right, on in the right. classroom. Um, and you also know what happened before, and you know what's going to happen, right? So what, what will I see? Well, um, I'll see kids using language for some specific purpose that is not just um, you know, filling out a, a worksheet or completing a list or reciting some kind of grammatical pattern. Um, there are students who are interacting, trying to decipher language, trying to create language, trying to have a communication using language. Um, in a real good classroom, it's often that you don't even notice the teacher because the teacher is somewhere either part of a conversation or a monitoring a conversation. And um, it's really, it's a noisy, it's a messy, it's, you know, it's a controlled chaos kind of classroom. I like the word messy. That's awesome. And you don't mean messy as in messy. You mean just no, what's happening. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, n- not messy classroom. Is, is, is a, actually, it's a big pet peeve of mine. There's a lot of messy classrooms. So, well, uh, this, this might put you on the spot here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said kids using language for a purpose. Wonderful. What percentage of the time in your mind should be the kids using the language versus the teacher? And you said you might not even know where the teacher is. That kind of, you know, barks up that tree. So what would you hope for? That's a great question. Um, it's and it's there's no magic number. Right, I've not seen anything out there. I just right. want your opinion on this. Um, and it's going to depend also where you are in the lesson, right? True. So if I walk in during the time that the teacher's providing the input, um, there's probably very little the students talking, but it doesn't mean they aren't doing anything with language. So whatever they are hearing or watching or viewing or listening to. They're doing something. So I see them completing graphic organizers. I see them sequencing pictures. I see them doing something with the language that they're just hearing, in this case, interpretive, right? Um, So at that point, they probably won't be saying much. Teacher will probably be doing most of the input. And at other points, it might be just the kids talking 100% of the time because the teacher is just standing back while the students are doing who knows what, some kind of interpersonal task. Um, So it just depends where in part of the lesson. I think the big thing is that we want the balance. Um, and I, right now, we don't hear, 
we don't hear enough of the kids talking in classes. Um, and, and actually, we don't hear enough of the students, I mean, the, the teachers talking in the classes either. It's, it's, it's more, here's a list of vocabulary words, and then now go try to do something, and it doesn't work for the kids. And I think it's interesting. A lot of the expectations, at least in Kentucky for teachers, let's say in the program review, um, it's expected 90% teacher target language use. It never says anywhere how much target language use of the student. It's like, oops. Right, and actually, if, if you look at the original um, uh, statement by, by, by ACTFL, it does say students and teachers, um, but I don't think we've done a good job in communicating that because in the original statement, it is we're talking about both parties in, in, in this process, that they're right. both using their language. Absolutely, yeah. And um, always being blessed with student teachers, um, I have found one of the hardest things with student teachers to get across to them is it ends up being the teacher show. And it's like, oh, you went through a whole class and those students never spoke. And they kind of forget to let the students have that opportunity. And it's really interesting. It's almost a skill you get really good at the more you teach. Yeah, and then also what they say. One of my favorite things to do is just to tally not just how much the kids were speaking, but also what kind of language were they producing, um, either in speaking or in writing. So did they produce you know, single words the entire time? Because they may be speaking a lot. But so what proficiency level are exactly, they Exactly, yeah, because that will That's tell you awesome. a lot about what's going on in the classroom. I like that. So let's break down proficiency-based teaching, starting with the curriculum. How does one build a curriculum with proficiency in mind? So is there a set of steps that you really like to share with teachers to walk them through this process? Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty pretty long one. I'm not sure okay. if we have, we have that much time to go through all of these well, today. But we'll, Yeah, well, uh, well, the first one would be to have, you've got to have a proficiency target, right? Okay. What are you shooting for? What are you hoping your students will be able to do by the end of, say, a semester or a year, whatever your, your unit of instruction happens to be? Um, once you know that, then you can you know, develop your learning targets around that or your performance objectives based on that. Uh, but that's really the first thing you have to decide. What is your target? And um, the interesting about targets is they're still new in this country. A uh, few programs have done it. Um, you know, Jefferson County was one of the first, mm-hmm. and now there's sure. lots of them. Um, and they're kind of, we don't really know. We don't have very much data. Um, but you got to have the, the, the target, um, and you got to design your assessments. Um, and then really the planning of the lesson is the last thing, right? So it's it's targets to figure out how students have met the targets through the assessments and then designing your pathways of getting the kids there. So when a teacher is deciding what those outcomes should be, what are they using to take to make those decisions? Like determine what targets, yeah. what are good targets? Correct. Well, I mean, we can look at some national data. Uh, so we know where students have traditionally performed. Um, so if you look at, for example, national data from the STEM test, we know that after one year, novice high is very reachable. Um, in all modalities, or is uh, one that certainly in speaking and writing, would, okay. I would think that listening and would be much higher, and reading interpretive usually comes as the first skill. Okay. Um, so we know that's possible even before we made any kind of change in our instructional practices, right? Right. Um, so that's what I always tell districts. So you you're probably at least as good as the rest of the country. Okay. <laughs> it's after that second year when it gets real interesting. Um, but for me. You have to get to an immediate because we know we have that two-year requirement in most Kentucky schools, um, or at least Kentucky colleges have the requirement for our students to get to the universities. Right. And if they don't hit an immediate, they'll stop taking the class. 
and that's what we that's what we see everywhere, right? I mean, we know attritional rates are atrocious, and that's because the kids never get right. to intermediate. So why is intermediate so important? Because it's the first time that a student thinks in their head they can do something, right? One of the big features of intermediate is that students can begin to create with the language. Before, everything is parakeet language. So if I can just say what you told me, then that's going to get pretty boring after about two years. So we got to get those kids to intermediate. And I encourage teachers always, you got to get them to intermediate, not by the end of the second year. You have to get them to intermediate by February of the second year because that's when kids sign up for oh, next year's classes. Right? So point. we really have to get them to them because if I spent two years in the class and I'm still novice, which means I'm, according to the Europeans, non-functioning, right? right? which it really is what it is, if according to the federal government I'm a zero on their scale, then why would anybody in their right mind continue with that class? And so kids are making the right decision when they're dropping out. Good point. Now you said the second step would be developing kind of the learning outcomes. How would you decide what those are? Well, that will depend on whatever thematic units I guess you end up uh, designing, but I think taking a thematic unit approach would be the the easiest way, okay. uh, easiest quote unquote, I guess, because it's not easy, but it'd be the most appropriate way. Finding the themes that would be interesting to students that would allow them to demonstrate language goals within those themes. Now I know in Kentucky we have our standard, and um, the themes in the standard are not exactly overt. Mm-hmm. One must really pull those out. So I know you're familiar with the Kentucky mm-hmm. standard. So imagine that's in front of you, you've got it open, you know, let's say, novice high is what you're targeting. How does a teacher pull together that unit using the Kentucky standard? Um, well, the good thing about the Kentucky standard is just really focusing on the language part, right? So the theme can be anything. It doesn't really matter. Um, vocabulary doesn't cite what the proficiency level is. Right. That's what teachers think. They have this, this logical order of topics or thematic focuses or whatever that teach students have to go through, but it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, if you can figure out how to lead with culture, how to figure out thematic topics that are heavily culture-based, great, because it's going to hook the kids and give you so much more access to resources. Sometimes we're struggling finding the resources because we pick themes that are old textbook themes right. and that don't really lend themselves well. Um, kids can be novices in whatever theme. It doesn't really matter. So find something that interests the kids. And that, that's really hard. So we always recommend to teachers finding big, broad themes that allow some personalization within. So don't just say, okay, I'm going to teach you about whatever, you know, Spanish singers from the 19th century because that's what I'm interested in because I love Spanish singers from the mm-hmm. 19th century. No, pick entertainment and then let the kids decide which angle they want to take. Um, or same thing with sports. You know, we, we seem to force soccer down language students' throats but maybe they're not really interested in it. Maybe they're really interested in, in mixed martial arts, and that's what they want to learn about. If you find something that interests the kids, you're going to get a whole different level of participation. Um, and we've seen that. Um, you know, kids will respond, and they'll be willing, more willing to produce, and much more likely to actually acquire the, the vocabulary that they need if it's something that they're passionate about, right. it's something that they're interested in. Again, topic really does not matter. Um, we just we have we have this artificial sequence in our mind that we need to let go. Right. One thing I found is interesting, and I started doing it I think probably three years ago. Um, I have a copy of the standard, and it's pretty 
I don't say ripped up, but it's pretty rough <laughs> looking now. And I took highlighters and um, for you know my sixth grader classes, uh, sixth grade classes, I highlighted in orange. This is what I do. And yellow is my seventh grade. And next to each one, I have, you know, I'll highlight something in the standard. And I'll go from novice mid, novice high, up to even the intermediate low, tapping on that door. And I'll highlight, and it says 1A, unit 1. Mm-hmm. You know, and I found it interesting because there were some of the benchmarks in the standard that I kept doing every unit. Which, I don't want to say that's bad, but there was a lot I was ignoring. And it was kind of a step I was forced to take at my school. And it made me realize there's a lot I wasn't teaching that I, I would assumed I was. And uh, so that's one process I took to build my units. And in doing so, the themes just kind of came out mm. that way. But I've seen floating around numerous places, uh, teachers have taken the AP themes. And I think Jefferson is weaving mm-hmm. those AP They are, themes. yeah. And I think that's a great step to do it. It's um, a good one. Because it gives you a real purpose in there. I mean, they're broad enough that you can find anything in there. Right. And then you mentioned assessments play a big role. And we'll come to that again in a few minutes. Uh, do you have any stumbling blocks uh, that you've noticed with teachers when they're trying to build a curriculum? Don't have enough time often. That's okay. the first problem. Takes a lot of time. Uh, people think they can do it in one summer. Yeah, it took us almost five years to vote the one in Louisville. Wow. Um, and then literally five years of meeting every single month and, you know, working on it. And a lot of teachers. And so a lot of teachers, teacher, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the, the other one is that they think they can take somebody else's curriculum. What's wrong with that? Um, you know, we shared ours pretty openly and a lot of people have used it. And our intent was never to have other people to use it. It was really just to see a model. The reason I think that it's working in some schools by the teachers who wrote it is because they went through that process of fighting and arguing and, and vetting each other's work and, and writing. Just going through that. The process is more important than the curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, teachers always say, oh, why do we have a new curriculum? Well, because every time you finish it, you're really probably ready to start a new one because you grow as a teacher. Right. So as you go through that process, you figure things out that you didn't think about when you first started. Um, so that process of writing the curriculum is so important because uh, that's when you have to learn everything about the standards, everything about proficiency levels, performance descriptors. You have, you don't, none of us started out that way. Um, and even if you think you know a little bit about it, when it comes to writing curriculum, you have to really dig into it and really learn about it. Right. And, you, and then when you try it out, it may not work. That's the hardest thing about writing curriculum. You think when you have it on that sheet of paper and now it's done, now we can go teach from it. It doesn't work. Um, if you see our originally curriculum, it looks so different than it does now. And now they're changing again. So that's good because it's different kids. Uh, they're different kids. And we as teachers are different teachers because we've gotten smarter. So, yeah, when people say this is, this is the biggest problem, the biggest stumbling. People say curriculum is a living and breathing thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it really isn't because people think they're done when they're done. But it really does need to be a living, breathing thing. It's never done. You're always going to adapt. You're always going to modify. And I like how you said it depends on your students. Yeah. Your students will dictate. Because what, what if next year's kids hate mixed martial arts right. because it's no longer cool? So now I have a whole unit on it, and I can't use it anymore. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to throw this word at you, textbooks. Okay. What are your thoughts? Uh, it's neither the problem nor the solution. <laughs> So should a teacher turn the page and teach, or what? Um, probably not. Probably not. 
Um, not because I think that they're bad, but because they don't they don't keep in mind what we just talked about, right? The textbook doesn't know your kids. The textbook doesn't know you. Um, and unfortunately, I've yet to see textbooks really embracing proficiency or performance. Um, they've gotten better, and they've including lots of elements of things that we know good teaching does. But at the end of the day, they still follow a what I call artificial order okay. of topics, both in vocabulary as well as in grammar. And so uh, um, they're a good resource. They're a really, so, really good resource. On that note, let's pretend you're talking to someone and they've got textbooks in the room and they just can't let them go. Just, and, or their administration mm-hmm. feels like it's something that should be Or used. the parents. Or the parents, or even the students. Mm-hmm. It blows some students' mind if they don't get a textbook. Yeah. So what would be a really good way to incorporate textbooks into proficiency-based instruction? Um, I think they're they're usually rich in resources. Okay. Um, it's all those. It's not the book itself, but all the other pieces that come with the series that I think are great. If I could just order that, that would be fantastic. So all the you know all the images, the um, the the audio stuff, the video things, those are great, and you just have to find them where they fit into your curriculum. For that, they're fantastic, and even some of the it's probably some of the activities that that are in there. It's just a matter of finding when they're most appropriate. Right. That's a good answer. Um, With proficiency-based instruction, the format or structure of the assessments is crucial. Yes. How can a teacher convert or make the tests he or she has been using into more proficiency-based assessments? So how can you take this older, more probably focused on grammatical accuracy, maybe a textbook test, how can you convert that into a proficiency-based one? Uh, and we're talking about formative and summative. Sure, of yeah. Course. I'm not sure you can. I would just throw it out. Um, and that's when people look at me funny because they're, well, I mean, because, like, so. I'm not arguing with you. You do those and then you do it. That's like, no, you do them instead of, right? So, yeah, performance assessment is obviously the way to go. What is, um, explain that to me. Okay, what is so it? it's it's pretty simple enough. I actually learned this in a, in a workshop with Craig Duncan. If you ask kids, how they best learn languages, right? They'll tell you all the things that the teacher's doing. Sing songs, watching videos, playing games, dialogues, role plays. They love all this stuff. And then you ask the same kids, and how, how are you assessed? They'll tell you tests and quizzes. So the way that they learn the best is not the way we assess. Mm-hmm. So by having a poor assessment, it gets, does, does that exact same thing, right? It does, it mirrors Assessment should be the exact same thing as teaching. There should right. be no difference. It's a mirror image, right? Somebody asked me the other day, what about, is, is this activity assessment or is this, is this assessment and activity? There's no difference. Every activity is an assessment and every assessment is an activity. That's the beauty of it. That's when you don't have to worry about formative or summative, right? So we can have 10 activities in the lesson. It's just maybe the last one is the one where I'll give you feedback so that makes it now an assessment. Right. But the structure of it is the same. Um, it's kids using language for purpose. One thing, um, I had a visiting teacher from EKU uh, actually yesterday, and one of the things I emphasized to her, I drew a set of steps. And I said at the top is the ba-bam, the what are we expecting the kids to be able to do at the end of this unit. And each step is one of those things, mm-hmm. skills, they need to achieve in order to do that at the end. 
I said, those are my quizzes. So each quiz is like a dissected moment mm -hmm. of what I'm going to expect at the end of the unit. And that seemed to help her understand what I expected of her when she did collect formative assessments to enter in the grade book. It needs to be have a purpose to it. And I think sometimes teachers forget that. And uh, you need to have that big vision. And on performance-based assessments, that's probably the question I know I get asked all the time is, hey, what do you do at the end of this thematic unit? Mm -hmm. So have you run across any just blew you away, you were like, this was the best performance-based assessment I have ever seen, best idea, something you want to share? And it incorporated all the modalities you know, yeah. within it. I mean, it's an interesting question, too, uh, the one you mentioned, somebody asked you that because there's something missing then, right? Yeah. Um, and I was just as guilty as everybody. You teach, you teach, and then the kids were, so what, and the next week is test day, or now we call it assessment day or whatever. And the kids said, what's going to be on the test? And uh, I didn't know because um, I hadn't created it yet. Right, right. So it's the same thing true with performance assessment. We can't wait until the end of the unit to figure out what that performance assessment is. It has to happen in true backwards design fashion. We've got to write it before we write anything else. Um, which then changes, of course, everything else that's happening um, in the classroom. So I think that's an important one to think about. So the, the first response you should tell a the teacher then is like, well, did you not think about this before you started teaching this unit? Because it, right. it's, a, it's a big one. Um, as far as really good ones, I know people tell you IPA is the, is the gold standard of, of assessment where you you know start with an interpretive task that leads to an interpersonal and then a presentational one. I'm not sure you have to do that every single time. Not all themes lend themselves to an IPA model. Okay. Um, and me personally, I've also begun thinking that I don't even want to include interpretive that much in the assessments, in the, in the real formative assessment, or the unit assessments, mm -hmm. because we're doing interpretive assessment every single day. That's every single day that kids have input, I'm doing an activity that allows me to see and allows them to see for themselves if they have understood that they have comprehended the, act, uh, the, the vocabulary, right? Right. So really for me, the big thing is in a personal task. In a personal task, I mean, you get to the immediate level of the presentational tasks. Um, I mean, there, there are a million of them out there. I'm not sure there's one that's better than others. But right. Well, like, I'll share one. Uh, I mean, I have 50 million to share. Any unit, you know, one would teach, they're there. Uh, my personal favorite one I've done for years, and it was high school, it probably fit a little better at high school, it's a little bit harder for the middle schoolers, was um, with my house unit. And my end goal is for them to be able to understand what homes look like in Europe, to be able to design one, to be able to sell one, and be able to buy one. So that's my end unit, and with that, students, you know, we do a lot of research on what they look like, they create it, and they write an ad you would find on Craigslist or whatever. Every year I situate the scenario different. They write an ad, so they're getting their writing in. And then we have an auction where everybody has a bank account. They've got paddles, you know, auction paddles. And they get up and they present their home uh, to the audience. Audience members have to ask questions. So you've got this interpersonal happening. Then I hold an auction and sell it. And while this is also happening, you're reading the classified ads everybody's written because you've been given a scenario of you're a big family, you want to live in the city, but you only have this much money. Mm -hmm. And so I know that's how I approach things is at the end, I want this big, and I call them projects. I don't even use the word test. I say, we're going to have a project because it does take multiple days to incorporate all the modes in something. And so every unit we do some big, but bam 
real world. Yeah, if, if, as I was going to say, if you're going to go down that real world thing, of yeah. course, the best performance assessments are the ones you can do in the real world. Right. So if there's a way to talk with a partner school, if there's a way to talk with members of the community, um, I can't imagine yeah. a better assessment than, than those. Those are hard to pull off, right? Uh, certainly every month, but if you can figure out a way to do one of those every year, that will make a huge difference. One of the exciting things is assessments, proficiency-based assessments, will be the focus of KWLA's next PD. Fantastic. So we'll walk people through on how to build those and give tons of ideas. All right. Um, can you talk about instructional practices? You mentioned earlier what a classroom might look like mm-hmm. if you had that moment or two in there. What are some of the activities or structures that are just so conducive to proficiency-based classroom? It's, it's almost like a gimme. If you do this, you are being a proficiency-based teacher. Mm-hmm. Are there any of those you can share? Uh, what is Probably Vadid, Vadid, the one. At conference, that was used by multiple people, and I loved that CIs right. coming into everybody's, you know, discussion so explain that coming back i think coming right? back that's a good, <laughs> it's been around that's for a, a long time it it's not a, it's not a new strategy it's just we don't few of us know how to really do it how to do it well so i did through it. i didn't know how to do it well and i i'm still not sure that i'm i'm i'm, I'm a crazy expert on it either um but just the idea of providing kids that comprehensive input to acquire the language uh is so much better than giving them you know vocabulary list uh, but isn't every time a teacher speaks in french or spanish comprehensible input I wish that's what it should be. Yes, um, you know it's, that's the hard part. So that planning for what you're saying, when you're saying, that's the hard part. So for me, when it comes to proficiency, it's changing the way you plan your lessons, okay. right? Um, and so embracing the same things we talked about for unit for curriculum, backwards design, having targets, having an assessment. Those are the things that I hope teachers will embrace when they plan their lessons. Right. So have a proficiency, a language goal in mind. What's my language goal today? How will I know that kids have reached that functional language goal? Um, and how am I going to assess them? Because if I do that before I plan a single activity, I've already planned you know, a third of my class anyways. And then I look for the authentic resources that allow me to provide the kids the input so they can acquire those languages, I mean, those, those words, so they can use them in a way. So I think that combine that with some, some research, some brain research on how to structure a class are probably way more important than, than the activities. I'm convinced that language teachers already know what good activities are. I see them all the time. That's not the problem. Teachers know what good activities are. They can, get, they can have kids do good activities. The harder part is that we don't do the right activity at the right time for the right target. Um, so sometimes I see, and it's fantastic, kids are engaged and they're doing stuff and they're using language, but it has nothing to do with the learning target. And it's not actually helping the kids to get better. So that, that's, that's where it gets really hard, right? Um, but that gets back to planning. Right. Well, one of the things I think we probably need to point out, if some, especially if somebody's a little bit newer to CI, is when you do give that input, and of course Crashen was probably the one to get most credit for this, um, you need to be I plus one. You can't be I plus two, I plus three, because that's when you lose your kids. So can you kind of talk about that for a second? What do we? What, what did Krashen mean when he said I plus one? Hmm. Yeah, Krashen, I probably have the biggest fans right now. So I'm not <laughs> sure that I want to even okay, think that I'm talking to him. Name. But um, I think the big thing is that, especially because 
we're getting some pushback on the idea of comprehensive and authentic resources, right? Because people, teachers say, well, I can't find a level one reading. So they're aware or a level of what one plus one is, Correct. which is really interesting. There are. Um, and so what the recommendation for me and for lots of other people is, it's never trying to change the task, change the text. We're trying to change the task, not the text. So it doesn't matter what the resource is. It's what I'm asking the kids to do with it that, that helps them acquire what, what's in there. Um, so I can use one resource, for example, for level one, level two, and level three. It's just the kids are doing different things with the same resource. So it's the task. It's what I'm doing, what I'm asking the kids to do that's so important. Okay. Um, and it can't just be, okay, understand all the words and translate. That's not an effective way of doing it. Um, it has to be, and that's where proficiency comes back in. It's having to go back to, okay, and you can look at the Kentucky Standard right there. What does interpretive listening really mean for a novice high speaker? Right. And if you read that, you'll be surprised. Most teachers, I bet, will be surprised. I was surprised when I first learned it. Um, it's very little. It's very, very little. We're talking about main ideas. We're talking about, okay, this is an ad for uh, sports. I have no idea that it's, you know, all the different details that were presented in that ad because that's not where my ears are yet. So it's that it's that task that's so much more important to that allows the kids to access what we're trying to get okay, them across. That's a good way to look at it. Um, now I know um, I hope listeners are not just stopping with CI. They're not just stopping with the concept of comprehensible input because there was so much research that built upon that, and it kind of worries me when I just hear someone say CI. Um, I believe it's Marilyn Swain did a lot of uh, research up in Canada on immersion schools, and they were finding the students at these immersion schools, yeah, they could understand interpretive. Their, that modality was really high. They were testing high, but they couldn't produce mm-hmm. anything. So just because you are being cognizant of speaking right above your student's level at I plus one, you have to then turn around and give the students output. And so there's a follow-up theory, the output, um, hypothesis that that's how your students are going to be more communi- communicative. So it's I plus one plus output. And that's why so, I said the assessment is so important, right? Yeah. Because exactly. if my assessment is whatever it is, then I have to design little mini versions of that assessment every single day to help get the kids ready for that. So and if my assessment is going to be an interpersonal one or presentational one, I'm going to design tons of activities that help them prepare, right. get ready for that. And you're right, it can't just be the input that helps them. It's just that's, that's half the equation, right? Yeah, I agree. Well, changing what one does, one's thinking, one's curriculum, one's practices, one's assessments, that is very daunting. It's a yes. lot for a teacher to handle, especially if you're a French or German teacher. You might be the only one at your school. You have every level. So with that said, what advice would you give a teacher who really wants to make a change, but it's just so overwhelming? I probably get that question in every single workshop that I do. At the end of it, when it's question time, people say, I'm with you. I love all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I love all that proficiency stuff. I love all that performance estimate stuff. But what's your recommendation for getting started? Where do I start? Right? That's the million-dollar question. Um, And my answer is always start with one level for one year. Pick one level that you can fully commit to, and you can say, this is the level that I'm going to focus on this year, and I'm going to make all the changes. For Ideally, if you have the possibility, start with level one. That would okay. make the most sense, right? So start with your level one class and say, okay, I'm going to do extra work for that class. I'm going to 
you know, design extra special lessons for them, find the best resources, and I'm just going to let my other classes kind of slide. The but, way you've always been teaching, do the other ones that way. Correct. And it's really hard. And I always tell people, you just have to get over yourself. Yeah. Um, we haven't killed any kids yet with bad instruction, so they'll be fine, right? <laughs> What's going to happen is stuff that's going to work in your level one class or whatever class you're starting with, it's going to naturally bleed over in your other class anyways. You can't help yourself, right? Right. But you just have to say, okay, I'm not going to go down that route and do everything for every, for all of them. Start with one and then build upon because otherwise you're constantly redoing it. Given the current structure of the education system in America, I don't think it's feasible to do wholesale everything you're teaching. You know, it's what would... It's a little overwhelming. Yeah. And then you go back to what's easiest or most comfortable and that's not what you want to do so okay wonderful and here's kind of a hard question what if you're convinced and you teach spanish and there's three other teachers at your school Mm -hmm. and the other two are going to kind of stick with what they're doing any suggestions because there's so many teachers maybe in that situation what would you say to them yeah, I, I kind of like that we're seeing that more and more. Um, yeah, it, it is a good problem. It's a good problem to have. It's not fun because um, I can get. I've seen departments get pretty ugly about it, mm-hmm. um, especially when somebody comes in that maybe from a different school or a different kind of training, a different background, and trying to fit into the to the department. Um, and it's hard for, say, a new teacher to come into a department. Say, you know, I went to got this training, I learned all these things, and now I come in and say, that's not how we do it here. Right. Um, when you know it's the way you do it, because your KDABA is telling you, and your state standard is telling you, and um, so I know that's hard. Um, I mean, you obviously have to fit in, you have to make all the human connections right. you can, but I think you have to do what's right for the kids. Um, I always tell teachers, the way you change other teachers' belief is not to focus on what you're doing, but is to focus on the responses your students are giving you to your practices. So don't say, I do, well, in my class, I do this and I do this. You know, we hear that a lot. Right. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. No. Focus on, my kids can do this when I was asking them to do that. My kids can do this when I'm asking them to do that. That's a nice way. That's um, good. I like that. Because it's hard to argue with student work, mm-hmm. right? And what we have seen in the school to have begin to make the changes, we're seeing better results. Because when you have goals and you design assessments and instructional pathways to meet the goals, you're going to reach the goals. Right. Maybe not as fast as you hope, but eventually you will. And so in those schools, it's working because we'll get kids who, who can do things that they've never been able to do before. I have teachers tell me, Tom, I say, Thomas, um, my level one kids can do things that my level three kids couldn't do. And that's how you can convince other teachers. You deliver them students who are the most proficient students they've ever seen and who can do things that they've never seen kids doing before. Because that's when things get really sticky, right? Because we're like, well, these kids can, whatever skill is, they can never do this. And I, I can't even get my level three kids to do it. I was like, oh, really? We got that down first semester, no problem. Good so that, advice, yeah. good advice. Finally, uh, do you have any resources, such as a book, website, online groups, that you would recommend teachers to use or go to who are interested in becoming more proficiency-based? Um, well, I wouldn't do my job if I didn't recommend, um, if at least didn't recommend the Tell Project, obviously. Mm-hmm. So Tell I've been, us about that. Uh, I've been working with them for, it'll be five years now. Um, so it's a Teacher Effectiveness for Language Learning Project. And they have tons of tools for teachers to give themselves feedback on their practices. Okay. So if you want to know, how am I doing on 
what we talked about earlier, how much language my students are using or uh, what, how am I doing on providing comprehensive input, how am I doing on pairing and group work. Uh, we have um, some feedback forms that students can, or teachers can use on themselves. Uh, so that, that's a great resource, and it's just uh, www.tellproject.org. Okay. And um, the other one that that's just a personal favorite of mine is the, the, the weekly length chat discussions on Twitter. So if anybody that's on Twitter or wants to be on Twitter, or you, you don't even have to be on Twitter. You can just follow along without being on Twitter. But every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Eastern and Saturdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, um, teachers from all around the country or all around the world get together and just have the same conversation we're having just maybe a little more focused on something that's really important because every week we pick a topic that we want to talk about little teachers vote say this week we want to talk about comprehensive input or this week Mm -hmm. we want to talk about using authentic resources or using music or using video or whatever it is and then we talk about it for about an hour Um, and sometimes we come up with great solutions sometimes we just talk and think none of us know how to do this and so it's become a really nice go-to place for for language teachers. Um, while those Saturday and Thursday times are dedicated to really fast-paced, high-intensive focus chats, mm-hmm. the hashtag itself works 24-7. So at this point now, it's become my go-to community because people are constantly sharing ideas and resources wow. for anything that that they find or, or they're looking for. So, so yeah, language chat. Wonderful. Well, Thomas, it has been a pleasure talking with you. And if any of the listeners have any questions they want to follow up or they might be interested in having you come to their district or school, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, well, not surprisingly, the fastest would be probably Twitter. Um, and my handle is um, TMSAUE1. Okay. And or probably if you just Google Thomas Sauer Twitter, you can probably find it that way too. Or, or you can go to my website, which is www.learningshifts.com. Wonderful. Well, Thomas, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for the polyglotting news. Joining us with the university updates is Dr. Stace Dubervac from the Department of Modern and Classical Languages at the University of Kentucky. Welcome, Stace. Thanks. What news do you have to share? Uh, well, w- uh, we had two graduate students in French, Fari Bakanga and Caroline Board, who served as French translators for the delegation of Djibouti, which uh, visited the UK campus on September 18th. And then, we've, as this year is the year of Europe, I'd like to highlight a couple of events. We've got regular film series that's going on that includes films from all over Europe. Uh, one will be on October 21st. From 6 to 8, uh, it'll be an English film, a Bosnian film. Um, and uh, you can check, to find out more about that, you can check the calendar online at www.as.uky.edu slash calendar. Um, all of these events are free and open to the public, and uh, we look forward to seeing more people from the community at them. I also wanted to highlight a couple of study abroad opportunities that we half. One is in Rome, Naples, and southern Italy. And the link for that is UK Ancient Greeks in Italy 2016.weebly.com. And then we also have another study abroad in Italy from in Rome from May 15th to June 26th. Um, and the link for that is mcl.as.uky.edu slash study dash abroad dash one. Um, Next month, we'll be highlighting uh, programs in Arabic, Chinese, and French. 
I also wanted to take a, a moment to highlight a couple of opportunities for high school to study abroad. One is the National Security Language Initiative for Youth that offers uh, study abroad opportunities in Arabic, Chinese, Hindi, Korean, Persian, Russian, and Turkish. The website for that is nsliforyouth.org, and the deadline for that is October 29th. Uh, the next one is the YES Study Abroad Program, and the website for that is www.yes-abroad.org. Um, the, uh, the deadline for that one is December 1st, and then you've got the Congress Bundestag um, Youth Exchange Program. Uh, that deadlines on December 1st, 2015, and you can find information for that at www.usagermanyscholarship.org, and that's Wonderful. what we have. Wonderful. Thank you, Stace. From our KWLA board, they say greetings, and they are happy to report that the 41st annual conference went off without a hitch. There were 390 attendees, 52 one-hour sessions, and eight three-hour workshops. They are also pleased to announce that the, well, this is awkward, the 2015 KWLA Outstanding Teacher of the Award winner is Laura Roche Youngworth, um, selected amongst a group of award winners, and Stace was the post-secondary winner, so congratulations to you. And uh, I will be going on to Skult in February to compete for Skult Teacher of the Year. Yes, I am very nervous. I'm not looking forward to this. We are incredibly thankful to the Actful Teacher of the Year for the keynote and feature workshop and session. Uh, it was very well attended. Nicole's presentations greatly inspired us and we returned to school to build bridges to proficiency. The KWLA Conference Committee is already beginning work on plans for next year's conference. That information will be released very soon where it will be located and the dates. Several KWLA members will be attending ACTFL this year in San Diego, California as our very own Jackie Van Houten completes her term as ACTFL president. This is very important, so listen up. If you are a Kentucky teacher and you will be at ACTFL, please email us at info at kwla.org to let us know. Our first and second round of webinars are also going to be released very soon. So the first round are the web, uh, the PD that was offered in spring last year on what is proficiency-based um, teaching, basically. So how do you understand what proficiency levels are? And the new webinar, which will be created next month, will be focusing on the assessments, such as Thomas alluded to. As we wrap up our podcast on the proficiency-based teacher, I'd like to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you to KWLA and my peers for the honor of being Kentucky's World Language Teacher of the Year. I was truly humbled by this award. I did not expect to win it, and I didn't know I won it until I looked up and saw my horrible picture, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's me. And so there's so many people that I wanted to thank, and I just couldn't do it in the moment. I was tearing up. So if you will bear with me, I've got a list. Thank you, Lydia Kohler, for this year's nomination. Your thoughtfulness made this happen. Thank you to Jean-Marie Rouillet-Willoughby for having a vision for improving P-16 world language instruction and including me in this process. Thank you to my colleagues at Beaumont, the Everkind, Chandra Nair, and my partner in crime, Jillian Likens. You both make going to work a joy, even if it is in the back 49. We're in the portables. Thank you to the administrative team at Beaumont, especially my principal, Kate McAnally, who always finds money for anything we need. Thank you to Alicia Vinson, former Fayette County Public Schools World Language Consultant. 
You provided me a wealth of opportunities that enriched my understanding of language proficiency, and I miss you terribly. Thank you to Jackie Van Houten, Randy Barrett, and Alfonso. Every time we're together, conversations are great. Sometimes they're arguments, sometimes they're conversations, and they have helped make me grow. Thank you to the UK professors who stuck with me for 12 years as I moved at an escargot pace through my dissertation. You all taught me to look at world language education from a bigger picture and to defend my beliefs in research. Thank you to all my former colleagues at Anderson County High School, Sylvia Hensley, who would never teach unless she was next door to me. My administrators, Ray Woodyard, Chris Powell, and Bridget Wells, who really poured a lot of money into having me be trained and understand what best practices were. And thank you to Maureen Motzinger, the retired grand dame of Scott High School. You took a chance on a very young, very green teacher and modeled what a true work ethic is. Finally, I wish to thank Thomas Sauer. His nomination of me two years ago for French Teacher of the Year was the first time I'd ever been recognized by a world language peer for my accomplishments, and that really meant a lot to me. I encourage the listeners to look around and to recognize your peers. It is just a phenomenal joy to be nominated, and then to win is just the cherry on the top. Please take the time and do that this year and recognize everyone who's deserving of an award. And on this note, I shall end. This is Laura Roche Youngworth. Thank you for listening to Language Talk KWLA. Au revoir and happy teaching.